Okay, welcome back, everybody. That was a little longer than we expected. We're in a series. We're in the, in the book of John, and we're in John chapter 7, and we're, Jesus has just in John chapter 6, uh, he fed the 5,000. He preached this incredible sermon and went back and forth with some of the people, and now there is a festival that is in Jerusalem, and Jesus has gone up there. We looked at the beginning of, of John chapter 7. Now we're in verses 14 to 24, and I want to read those for you. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you so angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, what we're looking at is basically something that, that is going on today, too. People are asking, who is this man, Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it's a good question to ask. It's a, it's a question of searching. It's a question of thinking. If you're willing to be open, it's a great question to be asking. So who is this man, Jesus? And, and uh, they're, they're at this festival, and everybody is asking about it. In fact, Earlier in verse 12, it said, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. See, they're, at, they're wondering, who is this guy? What's going on? We've heard about him. We've seen some things. Some have seen stuff. Some haven't. But it's just the talk of the town. Everybody wants to know what's going on and who is he. And so what are they saying here? They're saying, oh, either he's, he's a good man. We think he's a good guy. Or he's a liar. He's an evil man. Maybe he's been deceived. Somebody's put these thoughts in his head. Maybe he's really evil and he's purposely just leading people astray. That's one of the things they're saying that. And people say the same thing now. It's still something we should consider. What they're doing is, and this is what I alluded to earlier, they are reacting to the magnitude of the sayings, the statements that he's making. They are reacting to the fact that he's making incredible statements. You know, it's like this. It's like if you got a message uh, from your bank, maybe an email from your bank, and they say, we have reason to believe that your account may be compromised. So please contact the bank right away. Now, that might not be a good example for some of you because you're like, yeah, oh, I lost five bucks. Oh, no, you know. But let's just imagine, for the sake of my example, you have serious money in the bank. Now, you get that email. Maybe you get a text from the bank saying that. You know, your account may be compromised. Some money may have been withdrawn. This is really serious. Would you go, oh, man, I know I'm going to call, and they're going to put me on hold. I might have to wait five minutes. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it sometime later this week. I'm not going to worry about it. Would you do that? No, I don't think you would, right? You wouldn't because you'd go, wait, this is serious, 
the magnitude of what you're dealing with demands a response. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus makes these claims. I mean, just a few of them. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the name of God for himself. I keep sending you prophets and you keep killing them. He says to different people, I forgive you of your sins. And it just drives people crazy. They're like, wait, no, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is going around forgiving sins. And if you remember, with, with the one person, he said, I forgive your sins, and people start murmuring. He goes, okay, you, you guys think, you know, th- you think that's a big deal. What do you think is greater, to forgive, to say, I forgive sins, or to actually heal a person? And you know what people are thinking. They're thinking, well, it's easy to say, I forgive sins, because nobody really knows whether that happened. And Jesus goes, just so you know that I do forgive sins, be healed. And bam, the man's healed. So what does he do? He's emphasizing. He's making these statements. And the magnitude of the claims demands a response. And we're going to see in this passage, it's very much like the previous passage. There are responses along the way. And then Jesus keys off those responses. Sometimes he answers the question. Sometimes he goes into what he, he feels like they need to hear. He doesn't necessarily answer or address the question. But he keys them off all these responses. So we're going to see that. In the next few weeks, as we go through all of these um, all of these responses that people give, and how Jesus comes back at them, and He just keeps coming back to them with, "Here's the deal." He's teaching them, He's leading them, He's confronting them with their sin. And when we get towards the end, we're going to see the greatest offer ever given to mankind, an offer that people can either accept or reject but it will have tremendous implications for the rest of their lives. So, like we often do, let's talk about the setting. What's going on here, right? So, verse 14 says, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So, this is called the Festival of the Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles. It's a, uh, one of the seven great festivals that the Jews had. And I just want to mention, because you probably hear them sometimes, or you hear somebody talk about them, but there's seven of them. First is Passover. Now, some of these festivals are just a one-day deal, and some of them last about a week or so. The first is Passover. And what, that, what does that celebrate? They talk about when the angel of death passed over people's houses because the lamb's blood was on the door. Uh, the, the next one that comes on the Jewish calendar is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the seven days following Passover where they celebrate the, uh, when they left in a hurry, they didn't have time to leaven the bread. They took their bread unleavened, so that's why they call it that. Then, then's the festival of first fruits, and that happens in the middle of the unleavened bread uh, celebration. And that's the idea of thanking God for what he's provided. It always happens on a Sabbath. Then there's a break for a few months. And they have the, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And that's uh, when they're offering up the first part of, of a harvest. And then comes the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah where the goal is to humble yourself. Then comes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where you repent of your sins and the sacrifice is given for the sins of Israel. And then comes the last, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, which which is what we're talking about. Sukkot is what uh, they would call it. And it really is a three-pronged celebration. It lasts for a week. It is, most scholars will say, this is the most... um, 
how would you say this, not exciting celebration. The, this is the happiest celebration. There's, this, is a, this is a feast where it is just total celebration. There's a, fe- you know, there's a feast where you're humbling yourself, and so it's not as much a celebration as it, as it is as stopping and taking, taking stock of yourself and your life and where it's going. But the Feast of Tabernacles has three areas that it looks. It looks back. Okay, it looks back because they're thinking about when God provided manna and water while they were in the desert. So they look back with thankfulness, all right? It looks at the present. They're thankful for the harvest. It ha- the uh, Feast of Tabernacles comes right after the harvest has been brought in. And then they look to the future. It has this, this future look that has to do with the Messiah who's coming. A couple of places it's talked about. One of them is in Zechariah. Listen to this. In Zechariah, he talks about Living water will flow from Jerusalem when the Messiah comes. Now, let me encourage you to read John 7 ahead as we're going through it, because that verse is going to come true in this passage. The verse in Zechariah that is one of the founding principles of the Feast of Tabernacles is going to happen in just a little bit as we get through this uh, little bit means a few weeks, but do you know what I'm saying, all right? Now, let me address one other thing with the setting that a number of people have brought up to me. Is Jesus lying in John chapter 7, right? I know a number of you have said it, because if you remember, in the first part, his brother said, come up to the feast with us, and he said, no, I'm not going. I'm not going to the feast. Now, that word not can actually mean not yet, but most places it's translated not, so we'll go with that. He says, my time is not yet here. Now, there's two possibilities. Jesus is either saying there's a day when I want to arrive at the feast that's set and I'm not going till then, or he's looking towards the future when he rides on the donkey into Jerusalem and offers himself to the nation of Israel and they reject him. That's another idea of his time is not here yet. And I think that fits because the brothers wanted him to come to Jerusalem, do miracles, and show people he's the king. That's what they were hoping for. And Jesus goes, no, not yet. I'm not coming as the king yet. That is coming. So I don't think Jesus lied. He just decided, I'm going in the middle of the week. I'm waiting till the festival is, is, is everyone's there. And Jesus says, that's, when, that's the right time for me. All right? So um, first thing people say, they say, by whose authority are you saying these things? That's in verse 15. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And what they're essentially saying is, whose authority are you coming to us with? By whose authority are you allowed to do this? Because you're teaching in a way that we don't normally hear people teach. Let me tell you how how teaching happened and how it worked. And it still happens today in many Orthodox Jewish settings, all right? If you have a rabbi and you ask him a question, like you say, should I watch Ted Lasso or not? And then what the rabbi would say is, he would say, well, you know, Rabbi Shammai said, and he'd quote him. Or Rabbi Hillel, long time ago, he said, and he'd quote him. And then he'd tell you, you have to, you have to figure out which rabbi you're going to follow. Here's, what, who, here's who I follow. He might say that. But he won't say this. He won't say, I don't think he should. I don't think he should. Why? Because he doesn't have the authority. You have to have someone who has a special type of authority 
to be able to make pronouncements and tell people how they're supposed to behave, what they're supposed to do. And so for, in Jewish teaching circles, what was always happening is they were referring to someone else who was considered an authority. All right? I want to show you this from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and, get this, not as the teachers of the law. Their whole point is the teachers of the law don't teach with authority. They yield to someone else all the time. That's why the Sermon on the Mount. Now, think about the Sermon on the Mount. What are some of the big things Jesus said? He said, you have heard that you should not do this. Thou shalt not kill. But I am telling you, I am teaching you that when you look with hatred in your heart and another person, you're murdering them. See what Jesus did? He took a spiritual, he took a a, a verse and he applied it. He applied it to their heart. He applied it to them. He spoke with authority. They are not used to that. That is not, I mean, if you, even something, uh, one of my, I love plays and musicals, and one of my favorite is Fiddler on the Roof. And yeah, da, 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 da. yeah, okay, nobody knows that. All right. Well, in that play, the part, at one part with the rabbi, they ask the rabbi something, and he does exactly what I said. He says, well, rabbi so-and-so says, blah, 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 blah. Teacher so-and-so says, da, 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 da. And they're like, what do you say? And, and that's the whole point. That's how they teach. So for Jesus to come and say, hey, you've heard people teach you this. Here's what I'm telling you. And for him to say, to speak with the authority of Scripture, they're amazed at that because it's not the the way they teach Scripture. It's a huge thing to the Jews. Here's what would happen for somebody to have that kind of authority. In the Hebrew, that word is called, uh, it's shmiha, and it means to be one who teaches with authority. Literally, it means someone who's dedicated. But what would happen is they would call a tribunal and, and the greatest rabbis of the time would gather together and they would present a person and we say, we think he has the authority to teach. And then they would go through this process of him teaching and them quizzing and questioning and going through all those things. Be, and sometimes they say, no, he doesn't. He, you know, which must be crushing to have all that done for you. And then they just like, you're out of here, right? So, they, they do that. And finally, what happens is the three top rabbis say, we give him the blessing. We give him the recognition. He can teach with authority. And now that person has that, right? So it takes at least three. It takes some kind of a gathering. So what are they saying to Jesus? You're teaching with authority. You teach with shmiha. Who gave you that authority? When was your gathering? They're asking for his credentials. They're asking for his resume, in a sense, almost. Now becomes the question, did Jesus, did that happen for him? And I think it did. I think what happened when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, a prophet, a recognized prophet of the land, said, this is a man with authority. And then who else showed up at Jesus' baptism? We're told the Spirit showed up at Jesus' baptism, which is a pretty good endorsement in my book, right? And then the Father showed up at Jesus' baptism. And what did he say? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let him teach you. And I want to tell you, the Father is saying the same thing to us today. 
These words are the words of my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Remember in, in, in John chapter 6, when Jesus was preaching that sermon, he'd step in every once in a while with a, with a truly, truly I say to you, which is saying, look at me. Look in my eyes when I'm talking to you because I'm teaching you with authority. And they're amazed at that. They're amazed at that. And one of the reasons why they're amazed at that is because where Jesus is from. Jesus is from Galilee. People from the Galilee were considered hicks. They were considered people who weren't very educated, weren't very smart, weren't somebody that anyone would look up to. In fact, we know one, uh, one high priest said no one from Galilee is allowed to pray out loud in the temple because no one will understand him because of his accent. Remember Peter at the uh, fire after Jesus had been arrested? And they said, hey, hey. I mean, a bunch of people standing around. You, you're one of his, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And what, is it, what does the guy say? He says, your accent gives you away. I can tell by the way you roll your R's. You're from the Galilee. And Peter, you know, gets all upset and frustrated, right, when he has that terrible time. And so one of the things, you know, it strikes me, this is where my imagination gets going. I start thinking, to a lot of people, Jesus' accent was something they detested because it was an accent they didn't like, right? So for some people, it would be, you know, Jesus would have an accent. You think about applying that to our situations, you know? If Jesus said, bless their hearts, those poor they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Honey, right? And people are like, oh, I hate that accent. You hate that accent because it's a terrible accent. Or somebody says, yo, yo, the poor in spirit, right? You know, they're going to inherit the kingdom of earth <laughs> all day, right? They're saying that. Why? So, and, and, and this is what's going on here. They're like, listen to him speak. Where did he get the right to teach like this with us? Who does he think we is? <laughs> yes, so don't judge me either. <laughs> Who does he think he is, right? We're Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. This is the crown jewel of Israel. He's from the Galilee, <laughs> whatever, you know? And so that's what's going on here. How does he teach with this authority? They're stunned by it. So Jesus answers them. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Now, here we go. Audacious claims. Jesus just makes a claim. I'm speaking for the Father. You want authority? Here's authority. The words coming out of my mouth are from the Father to you. Are you going to listen? Are you going to listen? Because you're getting this directly from God. And here's the great thing. We are too. We are too. Through this word, God is speaking to us. He's speaking to you. So Jesus challenges them. He says, okay, do the will of God. Choose to obey. 
what is the will of God? That's the, that's the first thing anyone asks when you start talking about that. And uh, because it's so much, you feel like, I can't do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. I can't do that. And Jesus is like, good, that's good. Now you're getting it. Now you see how much you need me. You're getting the hang of it. Part of the will of God is that you confess your sins. When you blow it, he says, center on my will and obey by confessing. So submit to the will of God. And then he says, whoever speaks on their, on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? All right, so Jesus, what is he doing? He's challenging them. Check me out. Follow me. Watch me. Listen to me. You will see it's not about me. You'll see that I am pointing to the Father. I'm serving him. And interestingly, he's saying, I'm serving you, not myself. We talked about this in John 6. Jesus is living with eternity in mind, not just the here and now. He's doing what's best, not what is most convenient or most comfortable, right? What would you do in those kind of situations if you were Jesus? I mean, I think about that sometimes. I'd be, I'd, I mentioned this, but I'd be terrible. I'd be terrible at it. They would say, whose authority are you speaking on? I'd say, you want some authority? Give you some authority. You know, lightning bolts would be my favorites. I would like that. I like to play a mage in, in World of Warcraft. So lightning bolts, I'm all, I'm all into that. And I'll just boom. Anyone, anyone else want to question my authority right about now? Right? I would just cow everyone into I just I would just, you know, make them all. And, and they wouldn't love me. And I wouldn't care that much about that probably. So that's why it's a good thing. Jesus is saying here, I'm serving you. This is not about me. This is not about me. I'm living with eternity in mind. He's saying, beware of people who seek personal glory. Everything they do, everything they say is all about them. Beware of people who want something from you. And then once they find out you're a Christian, they start talking God talk. Right? Beware of that. Uh, One of my sons was a soccer player. Um, He's still alive, though, so it's not total was. Soccer player, and uh, a number of schools were recruiting him, and one school that had a Catholic background, the the, uh, coach called us and called us and called us. And so I was talking to him one time, and he said, what do you do? What do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, you're religious. And I said, I don't always like to put it that way. Um, He goes, listen, your son will love it here. This is a religious school. We are all about God here. You know, all of a sudden, he's like, beware of someone. Whether it's a person on the street, whether it's a politician, whoever it is, Jesus is saying they're in it for themselves. They're using the language because they want to pull you in on it but they're in it for themselves. And he says, you can follow me. You can watch me. I'm not in this for myself. I know what's coming. This is not about me. Jesus is the epitome of a person living for himself. One of the beautiful things when Paul writes about marriage in Ephesians chapter five, and he brings up this whole idea of two people who are mutually 
mutually trying to please and submit to each other. But, but one of the things he talks about is that for men, you're to love, love your husbands, love your wives, like Christ loved the church. And then it gets, well, how did Christ love the church? Well, he died for the church. He died for the church. But even Paul then goes on and he, he explains what Christ's thinking was. And basically what he says is Christ was looking into the future on that day when his bride would be spotless and clean, would be this incredible, uh, this incredible thing that's just beautiful and perfect. And he said, in light of that, he went to the cross in the meantime. Jesus was thinking of what the church could be and dying for it. So what is he saying to husbands? Your job is to figure out the best your wife can be and make it happen. And make it happen. To serve in that way. He gives this incredibly beautiful picture of how this is supposed to work. Why? Because that's how Jesus did it. He says, apply that to your marriage. That's how Jesus did it. So Jesus here, he's telling them, be careful of those who seek personal glory. He's telling them, this is not about me. Follow me. Watch me. You'll see. Right? Seek the, the one he, he says, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is the man of truth. And then he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? One of the favorite sayings of the Jews in those times, and some conservative Jews still say these, Orthodox Jews still say this, and they'll say, we, the Jews, we are the recipients of the law. It was given to us. The whole world needs it, but we got it. And it was a point of pride. So Jesus pushes that right back on him. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps it. He confronts them. Even though it was given to you, you have cast it aside in so many ways. He, he, he pushes hard this contrast. It's one thing to receive the law, and it's quite another thing to obey the law. It's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another to believe God. It's a whole different deal. It's a whole different thing. And he's telling them, why are you trying to kill me? You have murder in your hearts. You're breaking the law. And he's challenging the crowd. Watch me and watch them. See who's acting in their own self-interest. Watch me and watch those Pharisees. Watch those Sadducees. Watch those leaders. Who are they interested in? And it, and they know it. They're interested in themselves. They're interested. They want to kill Jesus because he's threatening them. He's threatening their financial situation. He's threatening their power base because they're all about themselves, power and money and standing and fame. So the first thing they ask, by whose authority are you saying these things? Second thing they say basically is, you're crazy. You're crazy. What do they say? Verse 20, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? You're out of your mind. This is a perfect example of Jesus talking to different people at the same time. He's talking to the crowd. He's talking to the leaders. Some of them are understanding better than others, but he's giving it to both of them and because he's, he's talking to both of them. Uh, I used to coach uh, soccer in, uh, in high school, uh, a high school team. And uh, one time uh, in a pretty important playoff game, and, and the referee was just, he was just letting everything go. 
and it was getting, I could just watch, I could see my players, these the guys, they were, they were starting to lose control. They were getting so angry. The tackles were just flying in. Studs were up. People were getting hurt, and, and they're getting angry. So they start thinking about retaliation. And uh, one of the other players tackled one of our guys and, and just caught him from behind, didn't get the ball, total foul. And the ref just yelled, no, no, go, go, play on, play on. And um, the players slapped the ground, and you could just see. And I just yelled at him. I said, hey, calm down. Listen, figure this out. That ref is not going to call any fouls. He's not trying to ref the game. He's just here for the money. So don't do anything stupid. And the referee is eight feet away, and he just looks at me. And I'm just like, I wasn't talking to you, which was a lie. I, I, I confess it right now. That was a lie. But I had to get my guys under control, and I had to let the ref know, if this game gets out of control, it's your fault. You're driving. These are just teenagers, and you're driving them crazy with your... So anyways, that's talking to two different people at the same time. Two different people. Say, and that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, there are these people... He's talking to the crowd. There are these people. They're all out for themselves. All they care about is money. All they care about, they just care about themselves. It's all me, me, me. And he just gives the side eye over to where the Pharisees are standing and going, hey, you know, he, they know what's going on. He knows what he's doing. So Jesus says to him, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Do you sense a little frustration there? I feel like it's so comforting that Jesus maybe got frustrated at times because then I know I can relate to him. Because he hasn't only done one miracle, but he's done one right there. Earlier in John, if you remember what's happening, he comes in. There's a man who is lame. He's, he's been lame for, for a long time. And Jesus has this conversation with him, and it's on the Sabbath, which is key. On the Sabbath, and he tells the man, arise, stand up, you're healed. Pick up your mat which would be kind of a large blanket or something like that, maybe a little heavier. Pick up your mat and go. You're healed. And the guy's like, oh, my goodness, you know, whatever, you know. And he picks it up, and he starts walking away. And, and the Pharisees accost him, and they say, hey, who told you? You're not, it's the Sabbath. You can't pick up your mat on the Sabbath. That's work, right? And the Pharisees had all these laws about work, and they're all torqued up. Why? Because this man, Jesus told him he could carry his mat and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. Because in their interpretation of Sabbath rest, you couldn't heal someone. You couldn't give someone medicine unless it was life-threatening. Otherwise, it's considered work. God gave the Sabbath to the children of Israel and he said, this is a day of rest. Don't work. Make it a day of rest. And then the Pharisees and the, and the people of the law took it and said, well, what does that mean, work? And they came up with a zillion ideas of what work is, one of which is to give someone medicine or to heal someone. That's work. Can't do it on the Sabbath. So they're mad at Jesus. He says, I did that miracle, and you're all amazed? You're all amazed? And then he starts getting into him on. He says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision. Jesus says, let's talk about circumcision. And all I can think is all the guys going, ah, oh, let's not, right? Come on. We don't need to talk about that right now, right? Because Moses gave you circumcision. 
although he says, though actually it did not come from Moses, but it came from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So Jesus says, look, you leave individuals no room to decide what the Sabbath means to them. Because, the, but, because what rest is can be different for all kinds of people. And Jesus says, you don't do that. You have all these laws. You make everyone fit the law. You know, it's an interesting thing. If you study the Bible and we look for what God's will, things God tells us definitely to do or not to do, there's not a ton. There's not a ton. There's a lot of gray areas. Why? Because what God wants is that you come to him about certain things and you say, God, should I do this? Should I not do this? And you work it out. Because that's what a relationship is. If God put all the laws so that we didn't have to ask him anything, where's the relationship? Because that's what he wants, because he loves you, right? When my kids were little, and sometimes they wanted to do things with their friends, they would come and ask me, can I go do this with my friend? Now, if I wanted, I knew they were going to want to go to somebody's house, I could just post on a note on the door, you can't go. And that's that. But I wanted to talk to them. I wanted this to be a teaching time. I wanted to be with them and discuss it. Why? Because I love my kids. I love my kids. And there's a relationship. It's the same thing with us, with God. The Pharisees wanted to get rid, in a sense, get, just get rid of the relationship, make it all cut and dried. You can't, you know, what if somebody just gets a little cut? No. What if it's a big cut? No, we got to make it straight all the way across the board. Fair is fair. And so what is Jesus telling them? He says, we have this ritual that symbolizes being brought into the covenant that's called circumcision. It makes every, you know, people wince every time we talk about it. He says, we have this ritual. And you have decided that that ritual is so important for just a little thing is so important that the Sabbath can be broken to do it. Now we have this man who can't walk. And you have decided that if I make his whole body whole, not a little thing, the whole body whole, that's wrong. And he's like, this is screwy. You guys got this all wrong. And the Pharisees are furious. They're furious that he healed the man on the Sabbath. They're furious that he told the man he could pick up his mat and walk, which is like, and they want to kill him. Because what they sense is, he's dangerous. And here's the key. We can't control him. We can't control him. And they'll try. They'll try later. In Mark, we looked, when we looked at the book of Mark, there was a point where they came up and they were demanding us very specific. We want a sign right now. You're under our control. Obey. And Jesus is like, nope, not doing it. Now, the church has a long history of falling into this trap. The church has, has a history of saying, this is what you can or cannot see. This is what you can or cannot eat or drink. This is what you can or cannot wear. This is what you can or cannot listen to. This is what you can or cannot say. We have to be very careful. There are principles that apply to all those things. But as believers, we are all accountable to God. You are not accountable to me. You're not accountable to me. 
And I'm not accountable to you on these things. We're accountable to God. This is the beauty of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's between me and Jesus. And I make decisions based on what I think is best for my family, for me, and for God, and for the people that I know. I apply scriptural principles to things that I'm going to do or say or eat or drink or whatever. And then I walk in faith that it's, I got it straight between me and God. That's the beauty of it. That's what the Pharisees have taken out of Judaism. The relational aspects between man and God are gone. It's just all laws. They don't care that the man was healed. They don't care. They want to kill someone for it because their authority is being challenged. They see that Jesus is a threat. What will happen if we start allowing people to do this? There'll be healings everywhere. Total loss of control, right? Just ridiculous. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he said earlier, just earlier, watch these people. They do it for themselves. They seek their own glory. It's all about them. He's warning them about that. And so he says, yet because Moses gave you this circumcision, he says, and, and, he, and he goes into that in verse 24, finally he says, stop judging by mere appearances instead of judge correctly. He says, you're looking at outward preconceived ideas that people have brought into this. This is not biblical. This is not what God wanted. You remember, um, if you don't even you know, I'm going to tell you. There's a, there's a great story when, in, in the Old Testament when God uh, tells the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse, one of his sons, this man named Jesse. One of his sons is going to be the next king. So you go, I'll tell you which one to anoint as king. So Jesse's got a number of sons. And so what happens is Samuel walks up to the first son, and he's a big kid. He's a big guy. And, and Samuel's like, yeah, big guy, big sword, big warrior, king material. Because that's what kings were back then. Who was the best fighter? You need to be king. And God says, nope, not him. And what does God say? He says, man looks on the outside. I judge the heart. I look at the heart. And he goes through. He goes, nope, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Goes through all of them. And he says, hey, Jesse, you got any more kids? And he goes, oh, well, yeah. There's the little one. He's out with the sheep. And that word little one could really be translated runt. He's a little kid. He's just a, he's a puny little guy. He's not much to him. He can't carry a sword. He has a slingshot, you know? What a dope. And God's they get him, and God says, that's it. That's the one. Why? Because I'm, I'm much more important, interested in those things. Much more interested in those things. Because in those days, it was whoever could. And I mean, that's, that's happened throughout history. Yeah. If you, if you saw, you know, the, the, the movie and, and know the story of William Wallace, you know, freedom, right? William Wallace, we know, was about 6'7", which is incredibly tall for people back then. His sword, which is in a museum you can go to now, is five and a half feet tall. It's a huge sword, meaning he could cut people's heads off before they could even reach him. He was an incredible warrior, and so they said, you're our leader. See, that's how it works. And God says, not with me, not with me. The heart's more important. Let me tell you something, the heart is more important with you God's God looking at you than anything else. 
That's what he cares about. You're the person that he loves. You're the person Jesus was thinking of. That's what's so important. So he says, you're doing this all wrong. You're looking at it the wrong way. Stop judging. He's calling them back to the original purpose of the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, Jesus tells them in in another passage. He says, the Sabbath was made to be a blessing to people. You've made it a curse. You've made it a heavy weight that they have to wear. A heavy burden that they have to carry because they can't do anything. They can't walk too far. They can't do this. They can't do that. They can't, they can't give their kid medicine. He says, look what you've done to my word. Now, we can look at that and say, man, they are so bad. But we can do the same thing, and we have to be careful about that. So when we talk about this, when we think about this passage, one of the things I thought is, okay, if this passage is true, the, 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 these incredible things that Jesus is saying, what do they mean to us? So let's get some personal application here. If this passage is true, you have to go all in on Jesus. Too many Christians think, I just want part of Jesus. Too many Christians think, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus, not so sure about the king part. You know, I like the Savior, but the Christ part I'm not as concerned about. I want this, I want that. All of Jesus, just all in. And, and there's no in-between. I remember one time I was talking to a guy. He, he had become a Christian, and he was just wrestling with some things. He was beginning, God was working on him. He was beginning to see there were certain things he was doing that, that were just wrong, that were, that were sinful. And he was like, does this really, this is, I just am realizing this is not, I shouldn't be. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. He goes, listen, let me ask you something. With this following Christ thing, can we kind of ease into it? Or do we have to just jump in head first? And I was like, jump in head first, dude. Go for it. I know it's hard. Go for it. You can't say, I want the Savior, I don't want the King. Jesus is making these incredible statements, and it's all or nothing. He's not, he's not giving a middle ground. The second thing that we need to think about is being religious is not enough. Being a good person is not a good every, every religion in the world, being a good person is enough. Being a moral person is enough. But not, not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says it's not. Why? Because he's the way. He's the bridge. He's the only way. It's incredibly exclusive, and yet it's incredibly inclusive. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone, anywhere, any culture, any time, any society, any nation, doesn't matter. You know, people can say all faiths lead to God, and that's it's just not right because all faiths are satisfied with morality and goodness. And Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 that's not it. Grace, grace alone is what's so important here. It's exclusive, and yet it's inclusive. The third thing that we need to think about then is you have to have an open heart and an open mind. You have to beware of being biased when you begin to evaluate the claims of Christ. You know, I, I just, you can see that we have preconceptions that we need to leave We need to set them at the door. If you say, I already know what I believe about sexual issues or political issues or cultural issues or whatever the issues are, if I already know what I believe about those before I go to the, then what you've done is you've established a standard that God has to fall for. 
He has to, he has to obey, and he's not going to do that. He's saying, leave that stuff at the door. Just come to me with an open heart and an open mind. You can't predetermine the outcome because your opinions will color. They'll influence your search for the truth. So you've got you've to set those aside. And I get that sometimes, you know, speak at certain places. I go places sometimes, and people ask questions. And, and, and this guy was saying, well, you know, I, I really believe this about Jesus. Here's something I really believe about Jesus. And he, he kind of explained something to me. That just It wasn't Jesus in the Bible. It was kind of his own idea of what Jesus should be. And I just said, dude, where did you get that? Like first hallucinations? I mean, that's just not, that's not in the Bible. You're, you're making up your own thing here. And I said, if you can make it up, then your God's not any better than you. You need something more. I told him, I said, you aim too low, man. You need to aim higher. If you're kind of searching and you feel like you got issues, like, I don't know, this, I can't get past this. I really struggle with this. I don't think this is, man, I would love to talk to you. Not so that I can sit there and go, see where you're wrong, you jerk. No, just to say, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what you're thinking and what the Bible actually says. Because so many times when I meet people that say, well, you know what the Bible says, and they say something, I go, you know, it doesn't say that. God does not help those who help themselves. That's not in there. You're just making this stuff up. Let me tell you what it says. So Jesus is saying, hey, come to me. Come to me. Be willing to go all in. Be willing to say, okay, God, if you reveal yourself, I'm all in. Be willing to say as a Christian, okay, God, if you show me what I need to do, I will obey. Now, that is scary. I, I fully agree. It's scary and it's courageous. It's worth taking a chance on. It's worth saying, I will go where this leads me. Take time to read about it. Take time to talk with people about it. Take time even to pray. Even if you're not sure if God's real, I just pray, God, show yourself to me. Now, courage is required. But if you're willing to, he will show you the truth. G.K. Chesterton, I really like his writings. He wrote one time about if you found a key and you went around your house and tried that key in all kinds of locks, and all of a sudden, one, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever done that. Occasionally, I find a key in my house, more than occasionally, unfortunately. And I just go, is this the front door, the back door, the garage door, my car? Uh, so I try it. You know, like you get to one door and, you, and it's like not quite, uh, and I get it in, but it didn't go in very well. And it does nothing. Uh, and if you have a key like that, you go around, around, around. And finally, all of a sudden, one lock, it slips right in, pop, it opens. Then he writes, you, it would be reasonable to assume the person who made the lock also made the key, and he made the key for the purpose of unlocking the lock. That's just reasonable. And then Chesterton said, this is what hit me when I was a young man. I read the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, that was the key that unlocked my heart. I read the words of Jesus, and it it hit me to my core. It was the key 
it locks, it, it, that key matched my heart. Read what Jesus says. Read the book of John. Read the rest of chapter 7. He's going to say some incredible things. And he's telling people all the time, watch me. Watch me. Watch my daily activity. Watch what, listen to what I say. Watch what I do. Watch how I treat people. See who I am. There's no hidden agenda. There, there, there's, there's no ulterior motive. I'm not trying to get something from you. I'm trying to give something to you. And people lived with him, and, and they backed up his claims. That's why we have these writings, that he was tender but not weak, that he was strength without harshness, that he was humility without a lack of confidence, that he had holiness, and yet he had approachability, that he had authority, but he didn't assert himself unnecessarily, that he was courageous, and yet he was sensitive and tender at the same time. He would stand up to those who were self-important, and yet he would be winsome to the least and to the broken. People saw that. It changed their lives, and it can change our lives too 2,000 years later. That is why we call it the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for being here, being able to listen, being alive. And Lord, we are discussing things that are life-changing, that are momentous. The magnitude of the claim demands a response. Help us, Lord, to respond appropriately. Help us to be like that man, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We struggle with doubts. We struggle with things that pull us this way and that. And yet, Lord, we know we need you deep in our heart. We long. We long for you. We long for that life that Jesus said he brought, the life, the Zoe life, the life of of meaning, the life that is eternal, the life that is a new way of living, the change that comes from the inside out. Not morality, not goodness, but grace that changes us. Father, help us to step out in faith and believe and leave this place and walk differently wherever you may lead us. In Jesus' name. Amen.